Well, welcome to St. Pete's Online, wherever you are today. We're really glad you're spending some time with us, especially as we celebrate Easter. My name's Alistair. Let me add my welcome. I'm the lead pastor of St. Pete's. And before we dig into God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that although we cannot be physically present with one another, we can still gather together in spirit and that wherever we are, you are with us. So Lord, help us to celebrate that reality this day as we remember the good news of Easter. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today is a celebration. Although we can't celebrate together in person, we still have cause to celebrate because Jesus is alive. The present risenness of Jesus is an always present, ever with us reality. So even though we can't be physically present with one another, that does not impact Christ's ability to be with us on this day or any day. And so we celebrate and we remember that Jesus really defeated the grave. He really rose from the dead and that the resurrection really is great news that changes everything. As we step into this Easter season, we decided it's a good idea to put down the book of Ecclesiastes for a little bit and to turn to the explicit words of Jesus. So we're going to begin a new series called When Jesus Speaks, because when Jesus speaks, remarkable things happen. When Jesus speaks, the world changes, the waves calm, disease disappears, evil retreats, and death dies. When Jesus speaks, the paralyzed leap, the blind see, the sinner is forgiven and lives are restored. But what happens when Jesus speaks about himself? Over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at eight different things Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John. Jesus tells us that he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way and the truth, the true vine and the great I am. And even when Jesus speaks about himself, the world still changes. God is made known among us. Our world is turned right side up. Our deepest desires are stirred and we finally find our home. Because when Jesus speaks, everything changes. Since it's Easter, it's fitting that we begin in John 11, because there Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so today I want to consider three things about that. First, the house of mourning, second, resurrection, and finally, second, death. The house of mourning, resurrection, and second, death. So let's begin with our first point, the house of mourning. We learn in John's gospel that Jesus was close friends with Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And at this moment in John's gospel, Lazarus had become gravely ill, and his illness overcame him, and he died. And Jesus showed up too late. 
He arrived four days after Lazarus's death. And everybody's wondering why. Why didn't Jesus hightail it over sooner? Surely the one who could open the eyes of the blind and heal people, if he showed up on time, could have healed Lazarus. But now Lazarus is gone and it's too late. Death has the final say. Why didn't Jesus show up sooner? It appears again and again in chapter 11 of John. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, this is the setting. He speaks these words amidst grief and pain and loss and confusion about how God is acting in the world. And I find this comforting. I find this comforting that resurrection meets us in a setting like this, that resurrection meets us even in our present circumstances. Because for many of us, our experience through COVID-19 is one of grief and confusion. All of us in various forms are facing loss and we're confused. How is God at work in this? So when Jesus arrives and speaks about resurrection, we can be assured it speaks into realities like the ones we're facing. Now, when Jesus does arrive four days after the fact, the first person that meets him is Martha. And we read about their encounter in John eleven twenty one through 25. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. In his memoir, the late pastor Eugene Peterson tells the story of his mother's passing and funeral. And after the service, he was alone, sitting in silence with his daughter, when a man came and put his arm around Eugene's shoulder. And for the next three or four minutes, Eugene says that this man spoke in pastoral cliches. And then he prayed and he left. And afterward, Eugene turned to his daughter and said, oh, I hope I've never done that to anyone. Now his daughter reassured him and said, of course you haven't done that, dad. But in his writing, Peterson admits that throughout his career as a pastor, he had certainly done that to people, even if it hadn't been for quite some time. Anyone familiar with the house of mourning knows that cliches abound. Sometimes people don't know what to say, so rather than offer their presence and silence, they serve up platitudes and cliches because they're not comfortable in the discomfort. But Jesus didn't say, I am the resurrection and the life, as a cliche to steamroll over Martha's grief. And he didn't offer her some distant hope about a future resurrection, although that's what Martha initially thought Jesus was going on about. While we might sometimes convert these words of Jesus into a cliche spoken at the wrong time, Jesus speaks at the right time. And Jesus makes a promise 
not a cliche. And it's a promise for Martha as much as it is a promise for us. A promise that although grief is overwhelming, like a fog that inhibits us from seeing clearly or even hoping at all, death will not have the final say. Because Jesus is with us and he is the resurrection and the life. And Martha didn't know it yet, but she was about to see the truth of that reality with her own eyes. Because the promise of the resurrection is not just for the distant future. It transforms and changes and reorders the here and the now. Now, after this brief exchange with Martha, Mary runs out to meet Jesus. And we read about their encounter in verses 32 through 35. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Do you know what the shortest sentence is in all of scripture? It's right here in our passage. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus is none other than God with us, among us, as us. But he's not unaffected by our grief and our suffering. He's deeply moved, the passage says. He's greatly troubled. Yes, Jesus brings promises into our grief, but he also sits with us and shares in our grief. We worship a God who has empathy for us. Jesus weeps. Every single one of us throughout the course of our life are going to become familiar with the house of mourning. We are in touch with it now, the disruption and the loss and the confusion that comes with this pandemic. And whenever we're lost in a cloud of grief, we must remember that Jesus does not just give us promises, but he also weeps with us. Jesus knows our humanity. He knows we can't hear the promise if the person speaking doesn't share in our heartbreak. And so the two are together in our passage, promise and empathy, hope and comfort, resurrection and weeping. And that is how resurrection meets us. So let's move on to our second point, resurrection. After promise and tears, Jesus heads to the tomb of Lazarus. And we read about this in verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, or as the King James put it, he stinketh, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've always heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. How are we to make sense of this? Resurrection defies experience and reason. There seems to be ample empirical proof that dead people stay dead, at least most of the time. But scripture unashamedly holds all kinds of miracles in front of us, miracles like resurrection. So how do we make sense of it? Of course, there's lots of ways to try to explain or explain away miracles in scriptures. And over the years, hosting many different environments for people to question Christianity or to bring their thoughts and their challenges, I've heard people of all kinds of backgrounds bring so many different explanations. You know, the resurrection was actually a shared mass hallucination, which would actually be a different kind of miracle. Or it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a physical resurrection. It's, it's more of a metaphor that people use to make meaning in their life. Or the more obvious explanation, it didn't happen at all because dead people stay dead. These are just some of the different ways people try to make sense of the miracle of the resurrection. The problem, however, is the way that scripture speaks of any miracle. It never presents a miracle in the gospels as if it is something other than a nature-bending moment within the course of history. Miracles aren't meant to make sense in the way that we want to make sense of them. They're presented to us to defy our categories of understanding, to turn our world upside down, to cause us discomfort, to shock us back into the realm of possibilities. Because if God is God, if God really is alive and well and active within the world, then God can do whatever he wants within the creation he's made. The laws of nature that he set into motion, he can surely defy if he chooses to. So many arguments against the possibility of miracles misses a key component. If Jesus is God, Of course, miracles are possible. But if Jesus isn't God, who cares? Because even if Jesus was a rare and true miracle worker, the benefits are short-lived and don't mean much for us now, especially if Jesus was only human and is now dead in an unmarked grave somewhere. Scripture never presents the miracles of Jesus as neat, parlor tricks, nor does scripture present Jesus as merely a miracle worker. Miracles are always signs, signs that point to greater realities. When you're driving and you see a yield or a stop sign, you don't merely stop because of the sign, but because of what it signifies. We're not stopping because we fear the power of red octagons, but because they signify that traffic patterns are changing and that if you don't adjust, you're going to collide with someone. The sign is designed to capture your attention and alert you to the reality right in front of you. And if you ignore the sign, it's to your detriment and sometimes even to your peril. Miracles are signs. As incredible as they are, 
They're designed to alert us to a reality right in front of us. And in the case of the resurrection, the reality right in front of us is that a different kind of life and being is in the person of Jesus. Because he is God among us. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, which is why he can make dead people breathe again, not merely resuscitating them, but pulling them out of the grave and restoring the very breath of God into their lungs. And he can do it simply by speaking words. He says, Lazarus, come out. He's acting a lot like God, the God who speaks to create. And what we discover in our passage is that something more than obligation was at work in the heart of God. Jesus didn't just raise Lazarus from the dead because it was the right thing to do. The miracle of the resurrection comes out of a deep reality of God's being. The same deep emotions that led Jesus to weep are moving him now to raise the dead. As we see in verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. As beautiful and as comforting as it is, Jesus doesn't just offer us empathy. Yes, he shares in our grief. He weeps with us, but then he stands up. He rises to action. He does something about it. Because he didn't just come to share in our grief and sorrow. He came to liberate us from the shadow of death and restore us to the abundance of life. He is deeply moved to act and move on our behalf. And so Jesus isn't just the nice idea of resurrection. He is resurrection and he brings it to reality simply by speaking. And to everyone's amazement, Lazarus rises, burial linens, cloth on the head, four days of stinketh and all. Finally, let's move to our last point, second death. Something that scripture doesn't address directly is that Lazarus had to die a second time. I feel for Lazarus. To die and then to be raised from the dead and then to have to die again. For every healing, a person will get sick again. Those who gain their sight may also gain cataracts as they age. The paralyzed who gain walking may need to use a cane later on in life. And for every resurrection, whether it was Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the widow of Nain's son, there will be another funeral, a second death. So why does God offer us miracles, even the miracle of a resurrection, when the benefits seem to be short-lived? And I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I suspect that your experience through COVID-19 might be similar to my own. I'm actually finding it pretty hard to pray for the world. I'm not finding it hard to study scripture or to sit quietly with God or to embrace silence. But as I start to pray for the world, whether it's for 
doctors or researchers or for those who are sick, I find it hard to find the words. I'm praying for myself, but the moment I move toward intercessory prayer, praying for others, I'm finding it hard. I'm finding it hard to know what to say, what to ask for. But as I've sat with this struggle, I realize it's because something else is crying out from within me. I want to see God show up and intervene. I want to see miracles. I want to see God spare lives and lengthen people's days. I want to see God grant wisdom to researchers and strength and protection to our healthcare workers and discernment to our governing authorities. But even more, from somewhere deep within me, from a space that often feels a little bit empty when I sit with it, I want to see the kingdom come. And not just part, but the whole. I don't just want a sign of the kingdom. I want the reality. I don't just want the miracle, but what the miracle points toward, a new creation. And so I'm praying for miracles amid COVID-19. I pray for God's direct intervention. But what I really want is not a short-lived Solution. I want to see all disease, all pandemics, all suffering, all starvation, all famine eradicated from earth. I want to see resurrection and life in all of these places. I want to see God roll up this creation like a garment and change it as he promises that he will do. I want to see God restore everything in this world and eradicate all that is wrong with it. And so I continue to pray during this season, even when it can be hard at times, because the longing deep within me that is discontent and frustrated and uncertain how to pray at times, it is in fact a good longing, a holy discontent, a good desire. Because a desire to see the goodness of life is nothing less than actually a desire for the one who is life itself. A desire to see life restored to wholeness is nothing less than a desire for the one who is resurrection. So let's not squash our holy discontent. Let's not misdiagnose it as if there's something wrong with our faith rather than something astoundingly right. Let's struggle in prayer for God to intervene. Let's pray for miracles even if the initial benefits of them are short-lived. But even more, let's pray that the miracles might truly be signs that point us and all of the world to the king and the kingdom yet to come. Lazarus had to die twice in his life, but death did not have the final say. He would be raised again. Because the scriptures show us that Jesus was deeply moved again. Not long after raising Lazarus from the dead, we find Jesus at a graveside again. But this time, he tasted death for us. He suffered on a cross and died and was buried. But death did not have the final say. Death did not have the power to hold the one who is the resurrection and the life. So three days after being in the tomb, Jesus is raised from the dead never to die again. 
because he is the resurrection and the life. It's one thing for Jesus to speak and raise someone else from the dead, but the fact that he can die and be raised is a great sign. It's a sign that points us to the reality that resurrection is at the center of this universe, that God is in fact in control and has begun to reorder the entire world and reconcile all things back to himself. It is a great sign of hope that God will remake all things in due time. He will bring life out of death, order out of this chaos, wholeness out of all of this brokenness, and he's already started to do it. To borrow words from Flannery O'Connor, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. Or the poet John Updike, if Jesus' cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fail. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a nice idea. It is a historic reality. It's a historical event. And it changes everything, our beliefs, our ethics, our politics, our time, our relationships. Nothing can stay the same because resurrection is at the center of reality, restoring everything back to the way it was made to be, complete and perfect harmony with God. So I want to end with a simple truth. When Jesus speaks, he acts and it happens. As we see in this moment with John, sometimes when Jesus speaks, it actually was for his hearer's sake. It was for our sake. As he prayed at the tomb, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Sometimes Jesus spoke so we could hear him and believe in him. So for all the miracles we might see in scripture, behind the miracle are his words. And we can still hear Jesus speak. Because Jesus didn't just speak in the past, but continues to speak. The words of Jesus are not dead words stuck on paper or flickering pixels on a screen, the words of Jesus are living words. You can still hear him speak today because he's alive. Jesus not only said, but says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you hear him? According to the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, we were dead in sin and God made us alive in Christ. Resurrection starts now, not later. Apart from Christ, you're already dead. You just can't see it yet. But Jesus speaks. He comes to you and speaks into the death that's already taken root in your soul. And he speaks words of resurrection and life. And he raises you out of death. His resurrection changes reality here and now because he shares his very life with you. If you hear Jesus speak, nothing is the same. 
I try to imagine what Mary and Martha and Lazarus were like after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And I suspect that everything sunk in a bit deeper. They listened more intently. They followed all the more closer. They tried to put everything Jesus said about how to live into practice, not because they had to earn anything, but because they knew his words are a gift and they carry the power to change everything because resurrection means nothing can stay the same. And then, of course, they saw the empty tomb of Jesus for themselves and the world was turned upside down. God really is at work to restore this broken world and to make all things new and right and good. If you believe in Jesus, it's a miracle. And any miracle is always a sign that points beyond itself. Our lives are no longer our own. They belong to Jesus. He now lives in us and our lives point to him and the kingdom to come. And yet is even starting to appear right now. Do you hear him? Jesus spoke the words, Lazarus, come out. And it happened. And then he said, unbind him and let him go. Resurrection meets us in the house of mourning. It meets us in a time such as this. It meets us in our uncertainty. Resurrection can disrupt the here and now and change things. And so we must pray for Christ to speak within our broken world, to speak his words of life and resurrection, to undo all that is wrong around us. And resurrection is also a promise that gives us hope about the future to come. Because when we die, we too will hear Christ call out our name. Dara, come out. Micah, come out. Ellie, come out. Unbind her. Unbind him. Let them go. And death will have to give us up because the one who is resurrection and life has not only spoken over us, but abides in us, lives in us, shares his life with us. Scripture unashamedly teaches that every single person will be raised from the dead on the last day. Some will be raised to everlasting life, and some will experience what's called the second death, eternal separation from God. And so we must listen to the words Jesus has spoken, and so I think it's wise to end with his words. He says... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks that you are the resurrection and the life. And that you spoke so many words so that we might hear and believe. For those of us, Lord, who've never believed but feel like we're hearing you speak, would you so fill us with your Holy Spirit? Assure us of your present risenness. Show us that you're alive and help us to abide in you. 
For those of us who believe in you but are struggling through this time, Lord, would you speak your words of comfort and would you instill in us an undisruptible hope because of our certain future that you will raise us from the dead on the last day and that death and all of this brokenness will not have the final say. Help us, Lord, to persevere in prayer. Help us continue to intercede for this world that is crying out for resurrection. And Lord, come quickly, return soon, that we might be united with you more fully and enjoy you all our days. Amen. It's at this time that we usually draw near to the table of communion. But since we can't respond in this way, I want to pray and acknowledge that desire and give us space to respond to God. So let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you are truly present in the Holy Sacrament. On this day of celebration, on Easter of all days, it's sorrowful not to be able to receive bread and wine as your body and blood outpoured as a sign of your incomprehensible love for us and the whole world. We long to love you above all things, and we desire to possess you within our souls. Although we cannot now receive you through the sacrament of communion, we rejoice that you're not limited to sacraments. You meet us here by the power of your spirit. You unite yourself to us. And together with all your faithful people, we embrace you with all the affections of our souls. So although we are distant from your table, we take comfort that you are always with us. Never permit us to be separated from you. Amen.